Good morning, saints. Well, it's great to be back in Loma Linda. It's hard to believe that Kathy and I were the age of many of you some years ago when we were students and members here at University Church. Our son Andrew was born at the University Medical Center, and so here we are some 40 years later back in Loma Linda. We've been here in the meantime, of course. I was a little bit surprised that no one mentioned the earthquake this morning. <laughs> of course, we were up. Most of you were sleeping, but since our circadian rhythms are on Eastern time, we were 4.03 this morning. I was up uh, going through my PowerPoint program, and Kathy was reviewing her Sabbath school lesson, and I said, well, that's an earthquake. And she said, is that what that is? <laughs> I won't bore you with my earthquake stories, but I will tell you that I was... Uh, uh, on an appointment in Los Angeles in 1994 on a Monday morning when the Northridge earthquake came. And also I was in a very severe earthquake in Ley in Papua New Guinea, uh, but that's for another time. What I want to share with you today is something that has uh, occurred to me in my personal study and in our walk with God uh, in the many years that I've been teaching money management and stewardship. I do want to uh, just give you a little brief story, and that is uh, when I was at the seminary and in college, I took three years of Greek and a uh, year of Hebrew, and in the intervening years, intervening years since that time, I have used those ancient languages occasionally. And I have books to help me if I need to, you understand. But I did not learn anything about money management in college or seminary, and you need that every day and every week. Something's wrong with that picture. Hopefully things are changing, but I'll share with you briefly what I know. We're going to get into God's Word, so let's bow our heads, shall we, for a prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be involved today with the Advent Hope Sabbath School. I pray that you'll bless this group and the uh, influence it's having around the division in the world. And I pray that you'll bless each of us as we contemplate your Word today. In Jesus' name, amen. I have found that the key and I'll get into this more this afternoon when I talk to you about successful living, uh, to money management is to look at money and possessions in a right perspective, and that is an eternal perspective. This means a worldview with pos uh, our possessions, biblical perspective, seeing life from God's point of view, if you please. Believe it or not, what we do today, even with our money management, has a great deal to do with eternity. Everyday choices we make regarding money and possessions actually have eternal consequences. And the game of life becomes serious, very serious, only when the stakes are raised and actually when we realize how high they really are. There are large segments today of modern evangelicalism which have succumbed to the heresy that this present life may be lived selfishly and disobediently without serious effects on the eternal state. Never have so many Christians believed the lie that our money and our possessions are ours to do with as we please. Never have so many thought that as long as we affirm with our lips certain doctrinal statement, then live, we can live our lives indifferently to human need and God's divine command. And then everything's going to turn out well in the end. But when it comes to money and possessions, the Bible sometimes is redundant, often extreme, and occasionally very shocking. As a matter of fact, many people come to the Bible for comfort, not for a lecture on finances and money management, 
But for those of us, and I believe that would include everybody here today, who take the Bible as their standard for faith and practice, we have to ask ourselves some very hard questions. Here are some of them. How could the Bible's author and editor justify devoting twice as many verses to money than to faith and prayer combined? How could Jesus say more about money than both heaven and hell? Didn't he know what was really important? A large volume of Scripture teaching on this subject really demands our study. And the haunting question immensely important to each of us is, why does God give us so much information on money and possessions? What's the point? Actually, with so much to be said, and the fact that He had such a short time on the earth, why did our Savior spend at least 15% of every word that's recorded of His talking about this particular subject? And another interesting thing, why was He able to single this out in two-thirds of His parables as being so important? And the enigma actually deepens when we understand that Jesus linked money management to eternal life. Give you an illustration of that Zacchaeus story, the first 10 verses of chapter 19. And I'm just going to tell you this because we need to get into the PowerPoint program. But when Zacchaeus said that he would give half of his money to the poor and pay back four times more than he had cheated people out of, Jesus didn't merely say to him, That's a great idea. This sounds wonderful. What did he say? Today salvation has come to your house. A very interesting situation indeed. So I'm going to talk to you today about creator of heaven and earth. I did not come out here intending to get involved in a controversy. I just want you to understand where I'm coming from in all of this. There's some 2,500 verses in the Bible that deal with money and possessions. We're just going to look at a few of them today. But I will tell you, if people were to ask me, what is your favorite verse on stewardship? It was not even a stewardship verse at all, unless you see it from this perspective. But the Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want to tell you two facts about that. The very first thing the Bible establishes about God is that He is the creator of heaven and earth, and this forms the foundation for everything else the Bible says about Him. By the way, the psalmist is replete in the book of Psalms with allusions to creation, as you well know. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, who wrote 40% of the New Testament, over and over again talks about Adam and Eve and, and the Garden of Eden, all these kind of things. And if we don't believe in creation, the whole business goes out, you understand. Very interesting, but it talks about, about God, about who we are, and about how we should relate to Him. And the second and the most significant one, I think, since God is the only and exclusive creator, He is at the same time the rightful owner of everything. Within this worldview, all creatures, all of us, are expected to perceive ourselves and our possessions as belonging to God, the real Creator. Now, it's really fascinating to me. By the way, my uh, administrative assistant is a young woman who enjoys PowerPoint, and so she has, finds all these beautiful pictures. I won't spend time to talk about them, but I believe that they're not up there. Where are they? <laughs> Do I need to hit? I thought you guys were seeing all this. <laughs> Do I need to hit my function switch again, maybe? Okay. Did anything happen? 
I'm not getting the right picture here. I, you're okay there, I think. I wouldn't play with that. Let's see here. I'm not getting the opportunity to choose another one. You guys have to see these pictures. Let me try this. I don't think that's the problem. Just, we had it up here. I came at 8.30 this morning, so this would work. Okay, that's going to do it. Sure. Yep. Yeah, it's fine. Full screen mode. Yeah, I'll just go down to right here. Okay, can you guys see that now? You really didn't miss anything, <laughs> except the first six slides. What I'll tell you is the New Testament is very clear that everything that was made was made by Jesus Christ. This is pretty awesome when you think about it. And I'm just going to show you a couple of pictures, really cute ones. They're just amazing. After 6,000 years of sin, to believe that there could still be something like that alive on the earth, it's, it's really incredible when you think about it. Well, there's lots of things that we could talk about here, but the Bible is clear in the Ten Commandments that Jesus made everything, and we honor the Sabbath, the day that we're here together, uh, about that. David says in Psalm 121 that he lifts up his eyes to the hills, it's kind of interesting. I know things are a lot better, but when Kathy and I came out here in the mid-70s, uh, we were actually in Loma Linda for three weeks before we knew there were mountains here. And <laughs> I'm really serious. We came at night, and it was in the summer, and, you know, the smog was in here, and we just didn't know they were there. Uh, but anyway, here we are. It says, the Lord, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And by the way, something really interesting as Christians, we can have joy and adversity as we studied in our Sabbath school lesson because we know if we die, Jesus can recreate us warts and all. By the way, if he's not the recreator, everybody that's dead, that we never, we've seen the last of them. You understand? We have to depend on God being our creator to recreate us, of course. So we look for the new heavens and the new earth. And also, our three angels' messages upholds the fact that God is the creator and, of course, therefore, thereby the owner of everything. David said, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness or everything in it, the world and those who dwell therein. So much more. God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because the world is mine and everything in it. God is indeed the owner of everything. This is one of my favorite places in the Bible because I want to tell you something. Uh, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, <clears throat> when David was wanting to build a temple for God, which later became known as Solomon's Temple, as you know, he asked Nathan the prophet about this idea. Nathan says, wow, this is wonderful, but how could we ever build a place like this? And he says, well, don't worry. I'm going to give most of it from the royal treasury, and I'm volunteering to be the chairman of the capital campaign, and I'll get the people to do the rest of it. So Nathan says, when can we get started? Well, the next time Nathan talked with God, you understand what God said to him. You'll have to go back and tell David he can't build this temple because he's a man of war and has blood on his hands. But David said to Nathan, this man after God's own heart, please ask him, can't I just get all the building materials together? And then when my son Solomon comes along, he will build it. You know, it became Solomon's temple. You want to know something funny about the Bible? This is an incredible thing. But in the Bible, I'm an attorney and I don't know contract laws. I'll just tell you, in nowadays, we don't just shake hands. We sign our names and have them notarized. Do you understand? They, they actually did this. Uh, you know, this is what the notary says. But in the days of King David, when you swore you would do something, what did you do? Anybody know? You put your hand behind their thigh. 
King David was one of his last acts on this earth. He was sitting on his throne. And he called all of his guys together, the, you know, the, the cabinet members and all the leaders, came in, each one of them sat, knelt before him, put their hand under his thigh, and swore when he died they would help Solomon build the temple. That's why they got a temple. And this is pretty an amazing thing. So when they get all the building materials together, which God allowed him to do, he asked Israel to come together for a great celebration. And in the midst of it, it's, let's all be quiet and thank God for this. And that's what Second, First Chronicles 29, 13, and 14 is all about. David is praying with all the temple materials there, not built yet, just stacked up. Now, therefore, our God, he says, we thank you, and we praise your glorious name. But who am I, and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. In other words, we're just giving you back your own stuff. When our daughter Melissa, she's now the associate editor of Liberty Magazine, but when she was about eight years old, she came to me one day and she says, Daddy, I'd like to borrow $10. So if you guys have heard me speak before, you know I'm kind of deaf on debt. And so I said to Melissa, I took this as an occasion to give her a little lecture on debt and getting in debt. So I said, Melissa, you know that if you borrow, the people that lend you the money get to ask you lots of questions. She said, oh, really? Like what? And I said, well, first of all, they can ask you, what do you plan to do with the money? And then, how do you plan to pay it back? Is that true? If you borrow money, that's what they ask you. So she says, well, Daddy, I was planning to buy you and Mommy a gift with the money, and I wasn't planning to pay it back. <laughs> She's going to get me a gift with my own money. Isn't that incredible? That's what happens when we bring offerings to God. We're just bringing Him back His own stuff. We have to understand that. It's pretty amazing when you see it. Well, there are many things that I could tell you here, but I'm going to show you something interesting here now. In light of God's ownership, how should we order or live our lives? We must recognize that we brought nothing into this world and we're taking nothing out. We are simply stewards or managers of God's property. Is that a biblical concept? 1 Timothy, the sixth chapter, verse 7. Godliness with contentment is great gain because we brought nothing in, we're taking nothing out. Very simple. You have that. Here it is, 1 Timothy 6, 6 and 7. So I'm going to show you something. Jesus' famous mountain sermon, he said, this is Matthew 5, 6 and 7, uh, at the very heart of the sermon, he talks about money management. Isn't this incredible? So he says in Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why do you think he would say that? The answer hint is in the text. Because moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. It is not so much that it's wrong to store up treasures on this earth. The problem is it's stupid because it's not safe here. Now, I can say this with confidence now because in the last 18 months, Americans like you and your parents and your family have lost $14 trillion from their savings and investments that is gone. Did you guys hear that word? It is gone. It is not safe here. That's just important to know. Okay, so he says, but do lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, I may ask you the question. I ask this always whenever I do this seminar. How do you lay up treasures in heaven? Anybody know? The, you think the Bible has an answer to that question? It does. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story of the 
rich young ruler. Jesus asked him to sell. Well, you know, he came along and he says, what could I do to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus tell him first? Keep the commandments. And then he said, which ones? So Jesus started quoting the Ten Commandments. He said, well, you can stop right there. I've been doing that since I was a little kid. What do I lack now? He uses the word in the King James, yet. What's, what do I lack yet? And Jesus said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and thereby you will store up treasures in heaven and come and follow me. Now, this is an interesting story because God does not require everybody in this room to sell everything you have and become an itinerant preacher. It's just not the way it is. But he knew that guy's God was his money. Do you understand? That's why he asked him to do that. Now, it's kind of an interesting story because I want to go on and show you something. He asked him, Jesus told him, sell what you have. There it is, Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke uh, 18th chapter. Now, the interesting thing, do you follow what Jesus is teaching about storing up treasures in heaven? When you help others, you store up treasures in heaven. And when you help to advance the cause of God, you store up treasures in heaven. So I want to show you something now interesting. With the brief overview of these texts, an amazing truth emerges. It is true that you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Now, that is an amazing concept. That is probably the most profound thing I will tell you all day. You cannot take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And I will show you this afternoon that what you send ahead by helping others and helping advance the cause is counted to your account and will be given to you when you get to heaven. Most people don't even know that. This is an amazing thing. So in the light of eternity, how long a space is your life? Most of you know that I have I've written a book about this the great week of time thing, and I believe that a biblical chronology would give us roughly from creation to the second coming about 6,000 years. If that's creation and this is the second coming, and on the other side going way out that way is eternity past, and on the other side going out this way is eternity in the future, with all of time and all of eternity, how long a space is your life? Just a little spot, like a dot, dot com. You understand? Something like that. With that in mind, think about it. Should you focus more on the dot or the line? You understand the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he knew he was trading the dot for eternity. That was stupid. Do you understand? We've got to use our heads a little bit. And this is what we're going to do, is we're going to talk about some ideas here. One of them is Colossians, the, uh, this is Christ Object Lessons, excuse me, 351. Money has of no more value than sand, only as it is put to use in providing for the necessities of life, in blessing others, and advancing the cause of Christ. Now, I want to show you something interesting here. The, we're put right here with something interesting, providing for the necessities, that's our own needs. And then the other two, blessing others and advancing the cause of God, actually stores up treasures in heaven. So here's something interesting. If I'm deeply in debt my whole life and it takes everything I earn just to keep my nose above water, how much am I storing up in heaven? Do you understand? Absolutely nothing. It's really pretty incredible. So we're going to look at, in the balance of the time we have, 
Seven biblical principles. Somebody told me there's 2,500 verses in the Bible. We can't go through all of them at one time. Why don't we just look at something simple like the Ten Commandments? Well, here's seven things that I have learned. And I want to show you the first one we've looked at already. God is the owner of everything. And there are many verses here. Proverbs, the third chapter, is one that's really, really a special one for me. I have it marked in my Bible. But I'm going to show you a picture now. Remember, God is the owner of everything. And we have these verses, Psalm 24, verse 1, and Psalm 50, verse 12. I've shown you those on the screen earlier and 1 Chronicles 29. But I'm going to show you a picture of myself and my family that was taken about 50 years ago. And here it is. Now, the reason that I'm going to show you this picture is to make a point. In case you're wondering, this is me right here. I'm about 12 years old in that picture. And my father who's passed away since that time and my brother Ken, and my brother Richard, and my brother uh, David. By the way, I have a brother named Richard. Guess what his last name is? Reed. Richard Reed? That ring a bell? If you fly a lot like I do, it would mean he was the shoe bomber. But this wasn't my brother, though. I'm just telling you that he's kind of on a list. The reason I'm showing you this picture is to make a point, and the point is we're leaning up against an old Chevrolet pickup. Now, people don't do this anymore. Probably it's against the law in most states, but when we had this pickup truck, it was our only car for six years. My mother took this picture, and my mother and my father, my little brother, would ride up front, and the other three guys would ride in the back of the pickup everywhere we went. Spring, summer, winter, fall. If it was raining, we had a tarp we could put over us, you know. I want to tell you something interesting. The reason that we had this old truck is because we used it to pull a 28-foot travel trailer. We weren't on vacation, my friends. For six years, that was our entire house, and all six of us lived in that little travel trailer. I'm trying to make you feel sorry for me. What I'm going to tell you, though, is the real fact, and that is when you have nothing, it's not hard to believe that God is the owner of everything. Do you understand? But when you begin to accumulate things... I thought to myself as a young man, when I grow up, I'm going to get an education, I'm going to work hard, and I'm not going to live like this. So many years later, I'm living in uh, Georgia and uh, have a nice home on 17 acres of land and have a Chevy Suburban and a Mercedes and a Mastercraft ski boat, and I said to myself one day, if my father could only see me now. And then I had to slap my face on the cheek real hard and say, wake up. That sounds just like Nebuchadnezzar. Is not this great Babylon that I have built. Do you understand what I'm telling you, folks? The more you have, the more difficult it is to be close to God. It's not impossible, but you have to understand where it all comes from. The more I have, the more responsible I am to God. Does that make sense? You understand. Oh, by the way, my wife Kathy and I were in Ukraine in May this past year doing a camp meeting there. And I was trying to make the point that we had nothing when I was growing up. But it missed it on these dear people because when they saw our car, they said, wow, you have a car. (laughs) Because 500 people were at camp meeting, only six people came in cars. Everybody else walked or took public transport. Do you understand? It's just relative terms, really. That's what we're talking about. Okay, the second one is to recognize that we're managers of what God has given us. And it's very, very important that we understand this, that we're managers of what God has given us. 
And that's one, we've had 1 Timothy 6, 7 already. Matthew 25 is the parable of the talents. He called them all and he gave them talents. One he gave a certain number and so on. You understand. Okay. This one to me is really important. Our purpose in life, this is the third point, is to glorify God. Now this is really, really amazing. Everybody here probably learned as a memory verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, where it says, whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatever you do, would that include the management of our money? Sure. How should it be done? Do it all to the glory of God. This one is really interesting. And of course, Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's the important part. Number four is interesting. Prosperity is having what you need when you need it. I will tell you, as a person who's made my life work in the last 25 years, studying what the Bible says about tithe and offerings and money management, you can read the Bible from one end to the other, from Genesis to Revelation, and you will never find a promise that if you become a Christian, you'll become wealthy by the world's standards. Did you hear what I just told you? But it does say that God will give you some certain promises. Maybe I should tell you a little story, because this past year, the person who said this just passed away, and if you read the National News Magazines, you've seen his picture recently. My brother lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and still lives in Oklahoma, but a nearby town. And uh, one Sunday, his job has been cable television installation and cable setups and big stores and wiring big stores and so on. Anyway, he was watching cable one morning, uh, Sunday morning, and a preacher came on and said, God has told me that if you will send our ministry $100, he will bless your family with $1,000. And Ken, my brother, said, Boy, that was just too good to be true. I never respond to things like that, but I thought this couldn't help it. So he said, I sat down and wrote them a letter and said, on a certain day at a certain hour on this program, you said that if we would send your ministry $100, you would bless our family with $1,000. And Ken said, the next paragraph was, I have a better idea. Why don't you send me $100 and God will bless your ministry with $1,000? <laughs> Obviously, he didn't hear back, but I will tell you something really interesting. God has not promised that we'll become wealthy by the world's standards. I want to tell you another thing that's really, really important. I remember one time as a young person in my early 20s, I told God in prayer, I can see the joy, you know, the joy that's set before us at the end. So you have my permission, I told God, to do whatever it takes to save me. But that wasn't the end of my prayer. I said, but please, help me learn my lessons the easy way. <laughs> you get the point? But it is worth it, no matter what we go through, when we get to heaven, we'll all say, it was cheap enough. That's important. But God has promised certain things, and that is Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all of your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. Matthew 28, 20. I love that one. This is part of the Great Commission, you know, where it talks about going and making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then it says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. That's why. Do you know that if you have a globe and you stick a needle through it all the way through, 
from most of places in the United States, where will it come out on the other side? Off the north coast of Australia, right in Papua New Guinea probably. So that's when I was in Leh in Papua New Guinea when I woke up in the middle of the night and there was a terrible earthquake. I didn't think, well, I'm not in the U.S. anymore. I can't pray because God says, wherever you go, I'll be with you. Is that good news or not? So I did pray right out loud. And here I am. God spared my life. Okay. Isaiah 26, 3. One of the worst things that happened in the last 18 months is a Ponzi scheme. Bernie Madoff built more than 5,000 clients out of $65 billion. Of course, he's now in prison. But the interesting thing about it, the people lost their money. It is gone. Some of his victims, I would call them rather than clients, have committed suicide because after working their entire life, their whole savings is gone. But Isaiah 26.3 says we're not trusting in money because what does it say, Isaiah 26 verse 3? Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. This is the incredible thing about it, really. Now, here's one. This afternoon, I'm going to talk to you about how to get out of debt. It's a real simple plan. It works for everybody, then it will work for you. What does the Bible say about debt anyway? Proverbs 22, verse 7, it says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the servant or the slave of the lender. Do you believe that's true? It is absolutely true. Oh, by the way, most of us get these credit card offers in the mail pretty regularly. I was in a seminar with a group of uh, church leaders, and it was a mixed group of other evangelicals, Baptists, Methodists, and so on. A Presbyterian pastor was sitting by me at lunch, and he's, we all have these big badges on that say our names, you know, so mine says Ed, and he says, Ed, let me tell you something. He said, uh, you know those credit card offers you get in the mail? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, last year I got like 60 of them, and I decided I was going to fill out every one of them and send them in. And he says, man, I've got like a $600,000 line of credit. I said, so you think. Try to go and get a car loan. Nobody would loan you a nickel because you can bankrupt yourself in just a few seconds. You have that opportunity. You understand? Having 60 credit cards does not improve your credit rating, believe me. This is important. So most people should have one or two at the most and no store brand credit cards. Everybody understand what that means? No Macy's, none of that stuff. Okay. Uh, At any rate, the borrower is the slave of the lender. I could tell you lots of stories, but we'll talk about that more this afternoon. Deuteronomy 28. This one is really interesting where Deuteronomy 28, you know from Malachi, the third chapter, it says when the people didn't bring their tithe and offerings, they're cursed with a curse, even this whole nation. You guys have read that part, haven't you? But let me just tell you something interesting. Does anybody know what the curses are? Have you ever heard a sermon on the curses? You're not going to hear one now, but I'll just tell you where to find them. You can find them in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 to 68. This is awful stuff, really, really awful stuff. That's what happens to people that are not tuned with God. And verse Romans 13, 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Being debt-free is incredible. 
I've had the unique opportunity of having been a speaker in every conference of all 58 conferences in North America, most of them at camp meetings or workers' meetings. And I, everywhere I go now, people will come to me and say, you know, when you came to our camp meeting, I didn't think I could do this, get out of debt business, but we did it, and praise God, we're out of debt. People come and hug me all over the place. From that, being debt-free is really an incredible position to be in. So I will just tell you to plan on that. Here's another one. This one is interesting. The tithe is the minimum testimony of our Christian commitment. Now, this one is very, very important to understand. So, I'm going to tell you a story. It's just an interesting story. In March of this past year, I was on a night flight from Chicago. Not night, it was in the evening after dark. From Chicago to Montreal. And I'm sitting in this little 50-passenger jet. And nowadays, the, the plane we came out on yesterday from Baltimore every seat was taken. It's like that almost all the time now. Hardly ever do they have any seats left because they're, you know, cutting out flights and so on. Anyway, rarely do you have an open seat anymore beside you. But on this particular occasion, when the door closed, and you can hear it locked down and so on, my, the seat beside me was open. It's a, a small jet, so there's just two seats on each side all the way back. It's not first class. There's no first class in this. But anyway... I thought, well, man, I'm going to get to stretch out. And I, somebody had sent me a book that they had written, and they wanted me to read it. And I thought, I'm not going to have time. But I took it with me. So I was going to read this book. And just as this plane started to taxi back, a guy came running up from the back and sat beside me. <laughs> I knew he hadn't put any luggage overhead or anything, and that he had not just gone back to the restroom or whatever. So I said to him, where'd you come from? <laughs> now, if you don't like to fly, what I'm going to tell you next will give you the creeps. But what he said was, the flight attendant told me to move up to balance the load. <laughs> this happens. It, it, you know, these small planes, they can tell if it's unbalanced. Anyway, the pilot can trim it out, but nonetheless, it's better if it's not too heavy in the back. So he's sitting beside me. And I'm going to tell you just really, really quickly, because I've got to, uh, to stop here in two minutes. But anyway... When he learned, I learned that he was a fourth-year resident at McGill University Medical School and Hospital in Montreal, and his family lived in, in uh, Wisconsin, and he learned that I was going to teach ministers how to manage money. So he says, man, I need that. So for two hours, I didn't look at that book at all. We just talked about money management and Daniel 2 and all kind of stuff. At the end of the time, he said to me, I think God sent me up here. I was ticked when that flight attendant sent me up here. My luggage is still overhead back there, and I've got to go back and get it. But he says, God sent me up here. Now, the real reason that I'm telling you that story is because I told him, are you a Christian? Ask him. He said, yes. And I said, if you're a Christian, the very best thing I could tell you, I'm a financial planner, I'm an attorney, I teach this all the time, but the best thing I could tell you, put God first. That's it. God will bless your family if you'll do that. That's incredible. Well, I told him a lot of other stuff, of course, but the tithe is the minimum testimony, and we're going to finish up. We must all give an account of our stewardship. This is number seven, and that means that after a long time, the, man, the master came and asked them and settled accounts with them. What have you done? There is nothing more certain than that we must all face the judgment, and that will include what did you do with what I have given you? It's kind of an interesting thing that you can understand. And I'll close with this slide. To the faithful servants, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. 
enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, I know many of you are very good students, probably everybody here, so I'm going to tell you a little project. The words well done are only spoken to those who manage their money in a Christian way. Try to prove it wrong. Thank you so much for your kind attention. We have two sessions this afternoon, one at three and one at four, and I think you'll appreciate uh, what we have together. So shall we have a prayer? We'll bow our heads, shall we? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity we have to be together today on the Sabbath and things that we can learn from our Sabbath school time together. May our hearts and minds be open to the understanding of your word, and may we be willing to say, Lord, you please have your will in our lives and teach us and guide us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.